Welcome to How It's Med, a podcast about medical innovators and taste breakers. My name is Abdo. And I'm Jeff. Together, we explore the exciting stories of leaders in medicine and in the medtech industry. Hey, Abdo, I'm sorry, but I think we found your replacement for the show. You what now? Yeah, this guy we interviewed, Upkar Tatley, has done such an amazing job of combining a plethora of roles, such as being a firefighter, leading an innovation firm that deals with public health issues such as the overdose crisis, founded a nonprofit that serves racialized, underserved populations, and is leading on various civic committees and boards. You're right, big man. That's pretty much everything I've ever wanted to do and more. Where's my pixel? Wait, no, I was joking. No, 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 it's okay. Let's get started, though. One question that we ask all our guests really is um, little uh, to tell us a little bit about their childhood and how that led them to be where they are now. Um, could you start us off with that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, no, I was, uh, I was born uh, and raised in the interior in Merritt, BC. I was born there. And then um, I come from second gen, I guess. My grandfather came to this country uh, after the second world war, he's in the, uh, infantry, he, he drove tanks and, um, came to Canada. And so like many, I guess, people after the war, uh, found work in the resource sector in BC. So, uh, forestry and mining. So having that background in a tank, I'm guessing he was really adept at, uh, fixing things about the fly. And, uh, <laughs> you, you know, you, I guess when you're in one of those you kind of know you have to troubleshoot real quick yeah you gotta you gotta <laughs> and so that's what he was able to do and, and that made him a great fit for my mining was a big thing uh, back then and uh so craigmont mine i think uh people know where the gold copper mine all right half that's bridge a little bit between that's bridge and Merritt. and um so we settled in Merritt. i was born there and then um we moved around a little bit. My, uh, my father, uh, went to university, but also ended up working in the mines as well. He's a heavy duty mechanic. Um, my mother was one of the first South Asian RM. And so she went at the time, I don't know if this school still exists, but, um, used to be called Selkirk College. And I think it's now part of TRU, uh, up in Calhouns, but, um, but at the time, Selkirk was in Nelson, BC. So she took us and, you know, myself and my siblings, and we ended up moving to a little trailer park in Nelson. So we were only people who looked like us and probably the whole town at the time, but then definitely in a trailer park growing up that way. It was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, then we did the Kootenai circuit. We did uh, Nelson, uh, Castle Guard Trail, and those were my formative years. And then we, uh, we came out to the Fraser Valley, um, finished up school, you know, played sports, you know, just your average childhood. But, uh, you know, my, my childhood was, uh, it was a different experience in that I did not grow up in metropolitan centers where people who look like me were, I, I didn't run into them a lot. Um, and so that had some inherent challenges, but I, I kind of feel like it had some benefits as well. Uh, gave me some good perspective. Um, and then after that, I did my undergraduate, I moved to Victoria, did my undergraduate and full grad at UBC, uh, did some amazing internships that really, that I really, really enjoyed. I, uh, I ended up in 
Arizona. I was doing repatriation of uh, remains there when this was the desert. Um, but then I also ended up in, uh, unfortunately, during 9-11, I was in uh, Washington, D.C. and had a, a wonderful experience despite the climate at the time. Yeah, a political climate. Um, yeah, and then just uh, returning to Canada, I did some additional work over for the federal government as well, uh, doing some stuff with residential school playing, um, and just kept grinding away and uh, ended up in innovation and science and technology. That's kind of where I've been for the past, I'd say, 13 years now. But at the same time, almost nearly you know, parallel to it, I have uh, been doing a lot of work on a nonprofit that I, I was a founder of. And uh, it's a nonprofit in the extreme sense that we're not supported or funded. It's literally just volunteers, people who need to do things, and we're doing it. And that's grown into quite a machine itself. So <laughs> that's kind of the origin there. there. There's way too many leads to go off from there. Um... But it, it seems like you're you're pretty proud about your nonprofit. So I'll leave Abdo to talk about um, that sudden transition from that amalgamation of like work in the states and your graduate work to innovation. But yeah, tell us a little bit about your nonprofit and and why you started it, what it does. And you know, and it was most innocuous start to it because I was in um, I was wanting to coach. I grew up playing sports. I played basketball, rugby, as I mentioned, but university, oddly enough, never touched the basketball. I ended up rolling and swimming. And so coming out of that and not being active anymore, I, I figure, you know, I still got a little bit, I got some optimism still. So, you know, I could still play rec ball and all that. So I was asked if I wanted to go and coach. And I said, sure, uh, more willing to do it. And, um, but I've handed a manual coaching from that organization. And they're, I think they're North America wide. And you don't read that stuff, but I just, maybe off the border, I just flipping through and I somewhere tucked in the back of it. It's that specifically how they were not, they weren't down with children or families enrolled in their programming for same-sex couples. And I had this, I, I, I kept trying to read that. I was like, I must be reading and rubbing my eyes. But I just can't be like, you know, well, like two years ago. What world are we living in? What world are they operating? So I had a, yeah, that was my wake up call in that the sporting world even is infected by this stuff and has been infected by it for so long. And most people wouldn't take the time to go in and read this stuff, right? Um, and so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to start my own thing, just see, see how it goes. And what I tried to do was there was a huge number of people who really needed sport. And it wasn't just the youth, but it was families as well. Underserved families that were newly immigrated, refugees, uh, urban indigenous, South Asian, uh, Asian of all means. I mean, you, yeah, you name it, the, the people needed sport access and they weren't getting it because it's so cost prohibitive. I know guys like me, I grew up in hockey town. So I never picked up a hockey stick because it was, it was expensive, especially for families just trying to get it at. And so I started a program, and it was a zero fee program, and then we had lineups of people trying to get it, which is good and bad because, you know, you kind of feel like, well, I'm feeling this need, but then the need exists. So you 
kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's one of odd situations. And it, we never looked back. And when I say we, it was just me and volunteers that I, I could pull together. Um, and yeah, we never looked back. And in fact, we continue to respond to the need. Um, so it was one sport, it grew to another sport. Uh, we realized that a lot of youth needed mentorship. So we added that component to it. We realized a lot of those kids need after school help. We added academics to it. Um, so the program just evolved and at, at peak, we were probably servicing 325 families and their associated children. And that's with zero funding, zero funding, just rolling out the program, making, uh, negotiations with local school districts, um, saying, look, this is how we're doing it. Can you let us use your gym? And yeah, it, it, it became so impactful, but in a way it was a blessing too, because it gave me a direct conduit to community. Um, and I'm sure you, you're, you're both aware that when you, do, when you do that kind of work, you develop rapport with community, a trust factor. Uh, not to put the kids, but their parents as well. So, you know, there was communication and there was a uh, real earthiness to the conversations we were having. And it gave me a good beat on some of the challenges, health challenges, social pressures that families were facing. And that, I was able to lean on that when I was doing my professional side of things. Uh, so if I ever had, you know, for example, if we were going to do beta testing or if I was going to do some initial uh, questionnaires on what, a certain technology could look like. And we were going to do it tailored to the Syrian community. We had just newly arrived. I could go to that community really easy, whereas many other researchers had to go through so many layers to, to access community. I've never had that challenge, but it's because I put in the grind earlier and still continue to. So yeah, that's kind of a, a, the nonprofit though. Um, it is, it's a halt. Um, so much. I mean, now we do food security programs. We do hygiene programs. We're out there doing haircuts for homeless people. We're passing out the uh, hygiene kits, like toothpaste and all that kind of stuff. We're doing, uh, yeah. So we do outreach programs around, uh, overdose and health. So we talk about harm reduction. We talk about resources from health authorities on how they can, uh, I don't know, people can access certain resources. We're working on a, a collaboration with a health clinic here. Uh, it's called Roshni Clinic. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So, yeah, that now that, like I was saying, when we started that nonprofit, it works in tandem with everything else I'm doing professionally. So, yeah, it, it's a very necessary component of my overall portfolio. This is a bit of a weird question, but I feel like throughout this conversation, you've talked around it, but what in your eyes is the problem that you, there is exists a need to solve? What is the problem you're solving? Equity. Well, if, if I could boil it down to one word, it's equity and access to resources and programs. Um, we don't have an equitable system when you consider, uh, healthcare. We don't have it when you consider social structures. We don't have it, um, in the academic world. We just don't have equitable systems set up. Um, in fact, uh, the argument could be made that our systems are geared to all, all, punitive. Um, if you don't come into this world with a, a sure shot given to you, um, you're going to be punished and, and you're going to be kind of 
held down and that's pretty much where you're going to remain. Um, and the only, you know, anecdotally, I could attest to that myself in that, you know, my grind was probably dialed up to a 10 throughout my formative years because I just knew I had to compete at a certain level just to get ahead and climb out of certain situation. Um, and so if I look at the families that we work with, or if I look at, uh, the vulnerable populations, whether they're homeless or dealing with addiction that we also, uh, uh assist, it, it all comes down to equity and, and access to resources. That's really what it comes down to. We are now, um, probably in the early part of 2020, just before the, pand- the, the pandemic hit, we started to identify a population of homeless individuals that were emerging. Uh, now I'd say emerging cautiously because I'm sure before they came under our radar, they already existed. Uh, but it just came up to our radar because I was pulled into a meeting with a ministry that is tasked with providing income assistance to people. And they were noticing that people were gathering in droves, but these people did not fit the stereotype of what a homeless person there. No longer was, and that stereotype being downtown east side or Wally, oftentimes Caucasian, perhaps a little bit of urban indigenous, but that's about it. The population now, especially in Surrey, uh, south of Fraser, is heavily BIPOC. You have a lot of people who are, uh, South Asian, who are, who, who, who don't fit the stereotype and they're not getting served. They're not accessing services. So when we started rule out programs um, and outreach programs to assist them in any way we could just have conversations, you know, you see a lot of their stuff, uh, personal belongings strewn out on the street. And I can remember vividly a conversation with one of the individuals. And I just said, you know, what, what's with all this stuff? I mean, you know, there's housing options right now. There, there should be something open. We can help you with it. He just said, you know, been there, done that. I'm not interested in it. I said, well, why not? He said, well, they're just barriers to it. You know, linguistic barriers, cultural barriers. Like, I, I just don't feel comfortable. In fact, I'm more comfortable on the street than I am in shelter right now, which is kind of a shocking thing to say. I think, you know, government and agencies are pouring money into these structures. But for a significant population, those structures aren't meeting our needs, but they're not being addressed. So again, it, it, it pushes down a population that we should be helping out. Um, and so I think the majority of my work, although if I'm answering, I don't know if I'm answering that. Of course you are. Yeah. I, I think it is around a fight to get an equitable playing around healthcare, around social needs for vulnerable populations. And if I can follow that up with an even darker question of what do you think happens if nothing changes, if we keep going in the direction you're currently going in? Yeah, I, well, I, I think, I mean, I don't have to speculate too much because we're already seeing it. We're, we're already seeing it in vulnerabilities around urban indigenous people, around uh, our black communities, around South Asian communities. Our overdose rates are just skyrocketing. And this is after the 2017 peak, uh, we're getting astronomical vibes around that. Um, back then I was involved with the, uh, interpreting some of that stuff, but the data coming in from the BC coroner, 
And that's when it emerged that the population suffering from overdose are members of the BIPOC community. And that's something that was brand new at the time. And, you know, it took two years for that to be released, that information and data to be released under the guise of the chief medical health officer's report. And, but in that time, we lost so many people in the community. So when we're not empowering, when we're not working and chipping away at structures to ensure equity, we are, in, in, in a very realistic sense, we are losing lives. We are literally, if these are lives lost to us. So the work is very important. And it's not just the work I'm doing, but there are wonderful agencies and individuals doing great, amazing work. So we need to create capacity in those people and organizations to do that work. And, and I find that that a lot of the time I spend is just, you know, throwing a easy log towards the government at different levels to say, help us, you know, just, this is easy. You know, we've got, we know what to do. If we don't know, there's peers, people with lived experience who can tell you exactly the walk they have to walk day in, day out. You guys just got to step in here now, start doing something. So it seems like you've got a really good pulse on the troubles that we face as a society when it comes to ensuring equity, as well as helping deliver some of the services that aren't being delivered to the populations who need the most. But on the theme of this podcast as a tech and health podcast, what are you doing on the innovation side of things that helps serve this purpose as well? Yeah, and so... Uh... You know, I, I agree. I've kind of developed the strategy and tech is 50% of it, uh, probably a little bit more, but one is community-based response is getting out there and talking to people. But the other part is technology. Um, I do believe that, you know, that equity that I'm seeking to afford communities, it happens through innovation. It happens through disrupting systems. It happens through looking at a situation and seeing how can we do better and that better being, how can we make it more fair and acceptable for people? Um, a, a perfect example would be, uh, the work around overdose. Um, I, and I only bring that up. It's most recent, but, um, that really, when you're talking to community, you realize that people were saying, sure, uh, resources might exist. Uh, the information you're talk, telling us sounds great. Now we've never even heard about overdose. We didn't even know what an opioid is. What's naloxone? What do you mean first day? Who, who's dying? What are, you know, like the gap between what people are suffering from and their understanding of what's happening and oftentimes their accessibility to resources, it, it, the challenge is huge. So I started to learn about, um, overdose rate anecdotally, and it was from the nonprofit. We had a lot of single mothers, and it was always single mothers, or recently widowed mothers, who would show up with a child and say, can you please keep an eye or tell the coaches to keep an extra attention uh, with this child today? And the reason is, father passed away, or her father passed away. Um, it was really tight with the father, he used to sleep at night in the same bed, now the dad's dead. You know, that happened once, I remember the first one, happened twice. Three, four times. And they got to a peak period in, during the, the, the peak of the fentanyl overdose crisis, um, where we were hearing that 
two, three times a week because we serve that much of the population. So anecdotally, I knew there was a challenge within BIPOC communities because primarily those are the communities we serve in the nonprofit. Couple that with that work I mentioned, uh, interpreting data that the genealogy team for the BC coroner. And that's when the data that emerged backed up what I was already saying at community level. Now, the gap between when they were going to deliver, uh, not even solutions, but just surely just present that information. It was going to be too long. The gap was too long for me to sit back and wait. There's an onus once you are aware of data, especially if you're involved in it, that you feel, and it's, it's, it's nearly burdensome. And I think if you're a researcher and they follow the data collection, you do come across that once in a while where you feel like you're sitting on some information and that's got to get out to community. Um, and that is when I really, uh, I created two programs and one was a project and it was called the famine project. And it was literally an outreach program. It was to get out to the community, provide them with harm reduction and outreach or resources around healthcare and what to do in the event of an overdose. But then I realized I couldn't just put out teams of peers and volunteers without some kind of a tool and tool came in the form of a technology, which was the development of the digital platform and the app. Um, in going to community, I realized a few things that they just did not want. They did not want, um, they, well, actually what they did want was they wanted to be engaged in the response, which was really innovative and why our digital platform is innovative that for the first time, oftentimes we have a healthcare solution, it's dropped on the person suffering from an ailment or has experienced symptom of some kind. So a health body or um, medical interventions will be launched at them. But what you effectively end up doing, and I don't think this is intentional, is you do tend to compartmentalize a challenge to a community or a segment of community. So in this case, a segment of users. So everything you're doing, it's further siloing those people. It's like I just said, those people, it is those people, it's those users, it's them over there. So. What this digital platform does for the first time, it gives it a communal response. No longer are you tailoring a technology to the user, you're tailoring it to everybody else. In fact, I often go and say, this is not for the user. This is for your grandmother, your, your younger sibling, your uncle, whoever. Get this technology in their hands that's free. Download it off to your phone and start talking about opioids. Start talking about arm reduction. Start talking about what an overdose looks like, how you can respond to it. Once we engage the entire community to respond to this crisis, it puts all the hands on deck. And that's something we have not done. In fact, it hasn't been done North America wide. We've constantly been focused on the user. And in a way, it's kind of a, it's an Eastern approach to this crisis. So we've been using the Western, Western approach of, well, here's the problem, let's just dump everything on there. Well, Eastern communities will oftentimes have a communal response to a crisis. So gather together, figure, okay, how are we going to address this challenge? So this technology, um, you know, uh, innovation is oftentimes lab intensive and you sit there and you're looking at, you know, how flawless code and making it streamlined and all that stuff. But really what's imbued throughout it all, it's actually, it's community. And that's, I think what I'm actually most proud of. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Met. If you liked what you heard, download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmet.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time, bye-bye.